of different occupations and yet chose to follow this man for three years. And so, no wonder they were afraid on a night like Easter night. Jesus, smelling fear in the air, shows himself, saying, Peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side. And the scripture says the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I'm sure the word rejoice doesn't quite capture it. In my imagination, there were fist bumps and hugging and swap stories. As they realized their risen Lord, their friend, was right there in front of them, in the flesh. They didn't want to go home. For like a dream, they feared maybe... If they went home and went to sleep, they would wake up, and it wasn't true. So Jesus, perhaps continuing to sense their fear and anxiety, speaks again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. But before we get to the sending part, let me just say how critical it is that Jesus, in his first words after his resurrection, says, peace be with you. He doesn't say, peace on you. Or the Aussie version, peace on you. Or peace over you, or peace near you, or even peace in you. But rather, peace be with you. He says, be, and that they would feel the peace in their core. Their very being would be filled with the peace, with the witness of the Holy Spirit, which he breathes on them. I don't know if Jesus ever wrote a discipleship training manual, but if he did, I imagine that the first words in it would not be go, would not be send, would not be commissioned, but peace be with you. This can't be overstated. And by the way, I'm not talking about some warm, warm, fuzzy feeling or wine, buzzy feeling. I'm talking about the peace that comes when God infuses the Holy Spirit into your life. You know, we usually think of discipleship, and I, I would love to have, if I could have interviewed each one of you when I said, okay, we're starting a, a series on discipleship. And I'd love to have like the inside of your mind tell me what you were thinking. Usually we do think of it as the doing and the sending and the going and the commissioning. And that's where all the glory, right, is put up in front. We, we commission our missionaries. We definitely um, continue to support those efforts. But we forget that all discipleship is called for each one of us and that it begins with this very act of receiving peace. <coughs> Receiving the Holy Spirit. Have you ever seen anyone go, sent, commissioned without a sense of peace? A lot of times we try to do discipleship and hopscotch over the most important part, receiving the Holy Spirit. You think I'm kidding, but many go without truly having the Holy Spirit as the empowering force the peace that they need to sustain such a vocation. I want to 
speak to you because as a pastor, so much, you know, you probably don't know this, but sometimes I write sermons for one person in particular or the community at large or something that's going on in our culture or something, and usually always that has to be that's surfacing in me. But today I stumbled, or not today, but this week I stumbled upon this article in the New York Times, even though it was written a year ago. I was kind of going through some files. And there was this wonderful article called The Joy of Quiet, written by someone named Pico Iyer. I want to I want to read you a few sections because this sermon comes out of a place not only in my own life, but hearing the voices of each one of you saying, I am desperate for peace. Now you may not use the word peace, maybe it's I'm desperate for a night off. I'm desperate for stillness. I'm desperate for quiet. But I want you to hear this. It's fascinating. He says, about a year ago, this man flew to Singapore to join the writer Malcolm Gladwell, the fashion designer Mark Echo, and the graphic designer Stefan Sagmeister. In addressing a group of advertising people on marketing to the child of tomorrow. He says, soon after I arrived, the chief executive of the agency that invited us took me aside. He said what he most was interested, he began, and he braces himself for this next generation campaign, but it was stillness. Around the same time, he said, I noticed that those who part with $2,285, okay, you getting this figure? $2,285 a night to stay in a cliff-top room at the Post Ranch Inn in Big Sur, pay partly for the privilege of not having a TV in the room. <laughs> the future of travel, I'm reliably told, lies in black hole resorts, which charge high prices precisely because you can't get online in their room. Has it really come to this, he says. In barely one generation, we've moved from exalting the time-saving devices that have so expanded our lives to trying to get away from them, often in order to make more time. The more ways we have to connect, the more many of us seem desperate to unplug. And he talks about internet rescue camps in South Korea and China, trying to save kids addicted to the screen. He talks about his writer friends who pay good money to get freedom software that enables them to disable for up to eight hours the very internet connections that seemed to emancipate us long ago. <laughs> the average American spends at least eight and a half hours a day in front of a screen. Did you know that the hours that adults spend online doubled between 05 and 09? The average American teenager sends or receives 75 text messages a day. Though one girl in Sacramento managed to handle an average of 10,000 every 24 hours. The interesting fact, and you'll find this quote in the Reflect and Respond, is we have more and more ways to communicate, but as Henry David Thoreau noted, we have less and less to say partly because we're so busy communicating. And as he might also have said, we're rushing to meet so many deadlines 
that we hardly register that what we need are lifelines. Wow, that preaches. And so from this text, from this writer, not even a uh, person from the, a Christ-following faith tradition, he talks about the need of stillness throughout this whole article, and then he spends time in a Benedictine hermitage. It's fascinating, and, and the people that he runs into. The part about this one quote that I want to leave you from him, he talks about a half century ago, Marshall McLuhan, who came closer than most to see what was coming, said and warned, when things come at you very fast, naturally you lose touch of yourself. And I think most of us find that we too feel the frantic pace, the frenzied lifestyle that has a hold on us. There's no space for God in our lifestyle, and definitely no space or energy for discipleship. I mean, how humbling do you think it is when people come to me and they say, you know what my favorite part of your worship service is? Silence. <laughs> Wait, you mean it's not good? The multiple hours that I prepare on a sermon, the music, the, the highly eloquent prayers, the liturgy, no. It's the fact that I put silence in the bulletin and we are silent together. That's pretty amazing. It rings true that you would pay $2,285 for a room without internet. Space is the lifeline in this world of rush and hurry. We have it all backwards. We want to go forth and multiply our ideas, our projects, our mission until we are until we are still enough, though, we will not have the non-anxious center, the peace be with you to lead from. Our stuff will always get in the way of our mission. Hear that. If we lead from any other place, then the Holy Spirit leads. So how do we get that? Jesus says, receive. I love this. The disciples, including Thomas, and we'll get to that story in another day. There's just too much material here. But I love the disciples because why they remind me of myself. They are in a place of distrust almost all through Scripture. And it takes them a really long time to move from a place of distrust to trust. And it's funny that, as you may know, Erickson's stages of psychosocial development, the first stage is distrust versus trust, from about birth to 18 months. And he says this is the most critical stage of development, that you learn that if you cry, you are fed, if you're cold, you are made warm. And how many of us have yet to go and move through that and feel safe? To be in a place that has moved from distrust to trust. I would argue that trust is the critical ingredient to peace. Anne Voskamp, who I quoted a couple weeks ago from 1,000 Gifts, talks about the essential nature of trust. She says this, 
I make soup and I make bread and I know my supreme need is joy. I would insert peace as well in God. And I know I can't experience deep joy in God until I deep trust in God. I shine sinks and polish through to the realization of trusting God is my most urgent need. If I deep trusted God in all the facets of my life, wouldn't that heal my anxiety, my self-condemnation, my soul holes? The fear is suffocating, terrorizing, and I want the remedy, and it is trust. Trust is everything. If fear keeps our lives small, does a life that receives all of God in this moment grow large? She begins to feel around the outside edges of it. Here in our crumbling economics, the fretfulness of parenting, the dizziness of the 21st century spin, she begins to realize and catches in her throat, if authentic, saving belief is the act of trusting, then choosing stress is an act of disbelief. Anything less than gratitude and trust is practical atheism. I find this very fascinating and convicting. All day when I first read this about eight days ago, I began to sense every time I had stress or anxiety, this would call me into a place of question. Am I trusting God? When I'm worrying, and we all know this, Essentially, we're living out of practical atheism, that God is not there to hold my tomorrow, to hold my future. Some people will say, well, I have four kids, two jobs, of course I don't have peace. Or I have a dying parent. Or I have a hard job, or I have no job. But I would argue if we're waiting for the right season of life to have peace, friends, the whole of life will, if peace will never come. For as Jesus says to these disciples, peace, receive the Holy Spirit. It's not a given. It's a receiving. So back to that sending part. When Jesus calls us to go, and he does, we have to remember where we come from. We can't be commissioned and cluttered. Well, we can, but we'll continue to go and go at that frenzied pace until we come to a grinding halt or a heart attack or burnout or depression. There's a reason Jesus chooses to breathe on them. Don't you find that wild? Did you ever think about that? I guess as a child, I thought this was, I think I told you, it kind of freaked me out. So I was like, what if you had bad breath? I mean, that's what kids think, I think. But... Then I thought, you know, was this some sort of strange initiation rite in the first century or something? But no. There is no accident, and it's no euphemism, I don't believe. I don't think this is some hyperbolic statement or artistic lavish. No, I think he really breathed on them. Why? Because breathing requires you to exhale, making room. Inhaling wind, air, spirit. And the physical act of breathing. Will you do it with me? One more time. Requires you 
to be still, to <coughs> re-expel toxins, and breathe in oxygen-rich air. I had someone tell me one of the best things you can do for your sermon when you get up to the pulpit is breathe three times. So if you ever see me doing that now, you'll know why. <laughs> like, what is she doing? But there is this interconnectedness with our breath and the Holy Spirit life. The energy, breathing creates energy, do you agree? It brings life. This is the only peace that we can have that we breathe the Holy Spirit air. My breath seemed to be shallow and not well supported, especially when I'm in choir and I'm putting my hands on my diaphragm. I'm like, I don't breathe from there. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit inspires us, gives us the literal air we need to live, to do, to go, to be sent, to be commissioned. And if we don't breathe well, we will always be dependent on some form of artificial respirator. A deadline. A literal deadline. That's why as a community, like these disciples, we, Providence Baptist Church, are called, as we talk at Free For All, this isn't an individual experience of peacefulness that you all go home in some sort of lotus position, although it's fabulous, so I encourage it. But rather, as a community, we are called to be one body that Jesus doesn't say, feel peacefulness so you can shine and be happy. But rather, I love this. If someone asks about our church or, you know, what's it about or what's your church niche or, and I, I know this happens. I'd love for you to say, we're a church that breathes. That may be quite opposite from some dead churches, right? <laughs> it's amazing like that $2,200 hotel, how attractive a breathing church is. Like the church that inspired me, Dayspring, I've mentioned it, it's sacred and simpleness. It was so funny, the pastor would say, we have the worst advertising in the world, and I would add, they have the largest growing church. How could that be? Because the Holy Spirit had space to breathe, and the people who had run out of breath knew where to find it. Providence, let's be a church that breathes. And guess what? It's not just a lung function. You know that sermon about all of us being a body, and we were a thyroid and a lap and a, uh, white blood cells? <laughs> Breathing takes the heart the capillaries, the diaphragm, the skeletal system at large, the brain. It requires, and you great people in anatomy, it probably requires so much more. Breathing together as a body of Christ requires each <coughs> of us. This is not a sermon to those who are contemplatives. This is a sermon for all of us, that we are called to receive the Holy Spirit, the breath. And once we get that, only when we get that, will we be like these early disciples who are willing to give our whole lives out of adoration to the death. <coughs> but it doesn't come from shallow breath. Friends, receive the Holy Spirit. Peace.